is it possible to be a, a good citizen and a good Christian at the same time? I'm Pastor Mark Toon, and that's a question that has stirred in me these recent months. Because of our bitter political divisions, because of a pandemic that has resulted in the loss of many of our liberties, I planned for this new year to preach a series from the book of Daniel on how to be a good Christian and a good citizen at the same time. We even had a catchy title, Subversive Leadership. Then came Wednesday, an assault on our Capitol building, five people dead, a national embarrassment. And I found myself wondering whether I should still preach this series. And the answer I decided was absolutely, more than ever. Subversion, by definition, is the undermining of an existing system or set of beliefs. <laughs> and the gospel of Jesus does subvert the belief system of our culture. Think about the Beatitudes. Jesus taught those on his famous Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. That was subversive. Jesus was undermining a culture that idolized wealth and power and happiness and sexual license. It sounds a lot like our culture. But it also crushed dissent violently. And when he later spoke about the kingdom of God on earth, that was subversive. And when Christian martyrs refused to affirm that Caesar was Lord, that was subversive too. The gospel does undermine our cultural values. But when Jesus' disciples took up arms to defend him against his enemies, he condemned it. His was a nonviolent revolution. And that was subversive. Violence in pursuit of a cause is never permissible for Christ's followers. I condemned it last summer in Seattle and Portland. I condemn it in Washington, D.C. too. And I don't care who's behind it. Last week, a pastoral friend of mine said, it is not an elephant that will save us. It is not a donkey that will save us. It is the lamb that saves us. And surely Jesus the Lamb of God calls us to something higher, something nobler than the chaos that we see around us right now. In this season of political turmoil and pandemic and anarchy, I believe that the story of Daniel and his friends is more relevant than ever before. It is the story of a handful of Jews who were swept up when their homeland was conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem was sacked and their nation was decimated. The brightest and best of them were taken away and transported to Babylon where they would be re-educated to become productive members of their new, their new empire. But the amazing thing about Daniel and his friends is this. Even though they were exiles in a pagan land that rejected their religion and subjugated them, God used those men to bless and influence that culture without them compromising their faith. American Christians sometimes forget we are the exiles. We may love this nation, but it is not our spiritual home. We are citizens of heaven. 
Our sermon series is titled Subversive Leadership because I think Christians ought to do everything we can to be good, productive, exile citizens of the nation in which God has placed us. And I believe there are unholy aspects to government and to power and culture that need to be subverted. And the trick is to find the balance between being a good citizen of our community and a better citizen of the kingdom of God. And I think Daniel can help us. Listen to this reading from God's word in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. You might expect that young men kidnapped from their land and forced into servitude would become bitter and rebellious. But the surprising punchline of the book of Daniel is that not only were they great citizens in their new land, they earned incredible influence over King Nebuchadnezzar, the ravager of Jerusalem. He became a worshiper of Yahweh because of the influence of Daniel and his friends. They were really good citizens. But there were also lines that they would not cross. And our text reveals the pressures that they faced navigating between the conflicting values of their earthly king and of their heavenly king. Here's how King Nebuchadnezzar sought to bend these young men to his will. He asserted his authority, diluted their worship, encouraged their dependency, and redefined their identity. You might find some of these as disturbing parallels with our present day. Maybe you are a Christian, maybe you are not, maybe you're not sure. But unless we recognize and call out the ways in which earthly powers seek to displace God's authority, we cannot make wise and courageous decisions about how we ought to live our lives. The first thing Nebuchadnezzar did was he asserted authority over the Jewish nation. Verse 1 says that in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim was the king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar decided he wanted to be the king of Judah, 
And he besieged Jerusalem until he got his wish. Nebuchadnezzar wanted more power. Power is addictive and corrosive. And the thirst for power is unquenchable. And once it is attained, it is rarely given away. One of the most amazing moments in our history was when George Washington, at the end of two terms as president, relinquished his power and returned to Mount Vernon to the chagrin of many who wanted to make him king. It was an unprecedented voluntary surrender of authority. There's a reason that the idea of term limits never gets beyond a campaign stump speech. Because once in power, few are willing to relinquish power. We ought always be suspicious of the addictive and expanding nature of governmental authority. Next, Nebuchadnezzar diluted their worship. He pillaged the temple of its vessels of worship and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. These were precious items of silver and gold that were used as part of the liturgy of the temple worship. By absconding with them, Nebuchadnezzar made it more difficult for Israel to worship their God. And by placing them in his treasury, he asserted the preeminence of his gods over Yahweh. In order to subjugate a people, the king had to subjugate their God and dilute the hope and faith and inspiration that they derived from their worship of their God. Whatever you believe about God, we ought always be suspicious of any outside attempt to control or define our worship of God. The next step in the subjugating of Israel was to encourage dependency. Encourage dependency. The king ordered the best of the Jewish youth to be set apart. They were going to be educated and assimilated into Babylonian culture. They would be catered to. They would be given the very best to eat and drink. They would be completely dependent upon the palace, wards of the state. And after a period of three years, the process of cultivation and grooming would realign their loyalties away from Yahweh, away from Israel, and toward their new king and his empire. We ought always be suspicious of any attempt by government to make us completely dependent upon it to meet our needs. So Nebuchadnezzar asserted authority, he diluted their worship, he encouraged dependency, and finally he redefined their identity. He stole their Jewish names, names that were a reflection of their faith in Yahweh, their God. And he replaced them with names that were devoted to pagan gods like Bel and Abu and Marduk. For instance, Daniel means Yahweh is my judge, but that became Belteshazzar which means, God, Bel, protect the king. Mishael, which means, who is like Yahweh, became Meshach, which means, who is like Aku, and so forth. They stole their names and the spiritual identity that went with those names and redefined them so that they would fit into their new culture. We ought always be suspicious of an attempt to squeeze us into a culture's definition of who and what we are. <laughs> so, with all of those pressures, 
What chance did these young men have not to be absorbed into a, a new culture, a new kingdom, a new religion, a new identity? And yet, as we will see, they did resist. Although they were good citizens, they found a way to, to cling to their identity, to reject a life of dependency, to maintain a vibrant spiritual life. And how was that possible? Well, I think the secret is found in verse 2 of our text. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Did you see that? In that verse, we find the theme of this book. God is in control. Complete control over everything. Over kings, over kingdoms, over circumstances. God gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Even events that appear to put the Jewish people at risk and the Jewish faith at peril, even those are within the control of Almighty God. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was asserting authority over the people of Israel, but the only reason that happened is that Lord God Yahweh gave Jehoiakim and Judah into his hands for a season of discipline and testing and judgment, frankly. We call this the sovereignty of God. So do you want to live a, a balanced life? A life that supports and encourages what is best in our culture? And that subverts what is evil and wrong about our culture? Well, the most important principle is this one. It's all about who you know. Do you know the sovereign God of the universe? When human powers assert authority over our lives, do you know the God who is really in control over everything? When human powers dismiss or dilute the importance of worship in our lives, do you know the God who deserves our worship, defines our worship, and empowers us through our worship? When human powers encourage unhealthy dependency upon governmental structures, do you know the God who is the sole source of all we require for life? And when human powers redefine our identity, do you know that God's definition of us is the only one that matters? And God has declared that we are his children, that he loves us, and that we are agents of his kingdom. Do you know this God? We just celebrated Christmas, the moment when Jesus, the Son of God, appeared on earth to dwell among us, to reveal himself to us, to save us from every evil power and restore his kingdom on earth. It is through the spirit of Jesus that we can live honorable, productive lives as exiled citizens on this earth while remembering that our real citizenship is in heaven. It is the spirit of Jesus who gives us the hope and joy and peace and love and courage to face challenging times and to recognize and resist counterfeit gods. The best way for us to be great citizens on earth and a better citizen of God's kingdom is to acknowledge that all of this is in his hands, to surrender to our sovereign God. And I can think of no better way to begin the new year than to bow before our sovereign God, literally. So I want to ask you to do something that might feel a little odd for you. I want to invite you just to kneel down right now where you are. Kneel down and allow me to lead us in a time of prayer. I know you may never have done this before. You may never have knelt in prayer before. But 
if you are willing to submit to the authority of God, the, the sovereignty of God, if you are willing to admit that the, the ways of this culture and world, they need some subverting, they, they need to be different, then why don't you join me in a word of prayer right now? Kneel down and let us pray together. God, we declare that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bow before you. We bow before your sovereignty. We acknowledge that you are the God of all and that every politician is but a pretender. Every power structure on this earth is a pretense. They are there by your authority alone. You allow it, but you move powers in and you move powers out. And ultimately, Lord, you will be the king of all one day. In the meantime, Lord, we acknowledge that we live in a kind of exile. And so we pray, Father, that we would be good citizens of this earth, but better citizens of your kingdom that you would instill in us the courage to recognize what is right and do it, to cling to the definition that you have made of who we are and not our world's definition, to depend upon you as the sole provider of all that we need to survive in this world, to, to believe, oh God, that you are worthy of our worship and to lift that worship up to you in ways that not only delight you, but strengthen us. Lord, that is our prayer this day. Would you be the God of 2021? Would you be the Lord of our lives in this moment? For we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.